Well, there are a number of things that I probably don't pay enough attention to. Things that should require more of my attention. Things that require maybe just a little bit of maintenance. And things that would perhaps or probably work better if they weren't neglected. When we moved into one of our former homes, maybe about two or three houses, three houses back, I guess, I was thrilled, I guess only two houses back, I was thrilled when I found out that the previous owner there had left a whiteboard in our mechanical room that had a list of the items that, that needed attention. And, and he would have there how often these things needed my attention. You would mark down when you serviced it and, you would, and when you would have to do it again. The next time you would have to pay attention to that. It included things like when to change the furnace filter or when to change the salt in the water softener or when to service the humidifier. And that list really helped me out. I thought it was a great idea. And so you would think I would make a list like that for myself when I moved into my next house. But I didn't. And consequently, I'm not sure that things in our home are running as efficiently as they could had I had that list. And that's not only limited to my house, it also affects my lawnmower and my snowblower and my car, although in your car now these days things start flashing when when you need the next service, don't they, which I think they set up to be really annoying so that you go and get your car serviced. But we need to pay attention to those things. If we neglect them or if we let them slide, or if we let them drift, well, they just don't run as well as they could, or they break down sooner than they would if we did pay attention to them. Well, that principle doesn't only apply to mechanical things. We, we also shouldn't neglect our health. We also shouldn't neglect our finances. Not paying attention to those things can have negative consequences. But the writer of Hebrews applies that same principle also, not only to things around our house, not only to health um, health issues, not only to financial issues, but also to spiritual things, and especially to the gospel itself, the good news of Jesus Christ. Only in that realm, there aren't just negative consequences, as we'll read about here in Hebrews 2, there are disastrous consequences. So follow along with me as I read from Hebrews chapter 2, and I'm just going to read the first four verses. Therefore, and that's referring back to what he had just said in chapter 1, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to by us, It was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. Thus far, the reading of God's word. And so here we have a warning from the writer of this letter. In chapter 1, he's he's just starting sort of to build his case on, uh, on the superiority of Jesus. In earlier times, he says there at the beginning of chapter 1, God spoke through the prophets, and we said that that probably encompasses the whole Old Testament. But in these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son. 
And that becomes then the final decisive self-revelation of God. And it comes in the person of Jesus. When you see the Son, you see the Father. But the Son is not just the final word. He's also the author of our salvation. He, he made purification from sins, it said back in chapter 1, verse 3. To all those who would repent and believe, Jesus will save them from their sins. This is good news. This is the gospel. We could say that Jesus is the gospel of God. The, this gospel is what the writer then is talking about when, he, when, he, when he's talking about what we have heard. He's talking about the Son from chapter 1 by whom God spoke to us. What we have heard, those things that we have heard, is, we could summarize them in one word, Jesus. And it's for all those reasons that we need to give him our attention. We can't leave him behind as, as someone to whom we just gave attention to in the past when we were saved. We can't underestimate him. We can't ignore him. We can't relegate him to anything lower than first place in our affections. We can't treat him as a genie-type figure who we just call upon when we're in trouble and need some help. We can't treat him as an abstract concept, as an uh, impersonal higher power. No, he is the Son. He is our Creator. He is our King. He's our Savior. But that danger of not paying attention to the Son is very real. We could all admit that we are far too easily distracted. We are far too easily forgetful. That's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper, so that we don't forget, so that it reminds us. We give ourselves way too much credit. We think that we can make things happen on our own. And we probably need to admit more often that we really don't like the responsibilities that come with acknowledging Jesus. We don't really, really want to hear his expectations on our lives. We really don't want to hear his commands. We really don't want to hear what it costs to follow Jesus. You know what we don't like? We don't like it that Jesus is our Lord and our Master. The Savior thing is a good thing. We needed that. But the demands of being a follower of Jesus? Well, maybe not so much. When it comes down to it, we don't pay enough attention to what we have heard and to what we know about Jesus, about the Son of God. So interjected here in Hebrews, not just here, but in at least five different places, are these warnings. There's this one in chapter 2. There's another one at the end of chapter 3, in the beginning of chapter 4. There's a third one in chapter 6, one in chapter 10, and another one in chapter 12. All warnings that are interjected here in these sort of um, instructions for us. And we have to say that God is kind to give us these warnings. We should never see warnings as negative things. Warnings are kind acts of God's grace to us. We should be glad that God doesn't sit back and say, oh well, I, I tried with that with that Sudfeld character. I gave him my word, but he's not listening. You know, he's, he's never going to get it. I give up. No. God doesn't treat us that way. He warns us. He says, here's what's going to happen if you don't pay attention. Don't neglect what you have heard. Don't neglect the gospel. Don't neglect my son. And if you do, there's danger ahead. And so pay attention. 
God is kind to give warnings. The image in the warning there in verse 1 comes from, actually comes from the realm of, uh, of boats on a sea. It talks there about drifting. Therefore, which points, like I said, back to chapter 1, we must pay closer, much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. If you're on a lake in a, in a canoe or in a boat and you're not paddling or the motor isn't running, there's a good chance you're going to drift if there's any kind of current there. And the thing about it is that sometimes, especially if it's uh, otherwise calm above the sea, above the lake, you hardly notice that you're drifting. The current that's under the water is quietly taking you away. And before you know it, you've just kind of lazily drifted with the current away from where you once were. That's the image here. It's a subtle kind of drift. And in this case, it can be dangerous. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. And so this warning comes right off the top. But then comes the reason for the warning, the, uh, the explanation for why we need to pay attention in verses 2 and 4, two, 2 right through to 4. But before we get into the potential danger, I just want you to see uh, some of the glories of what God has given us. There are some great uh, privileges listed here. We could say that there are great advantages to what we, that we have in encouraging us not to drift away from what we have heard and not drifting away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. These are uh, maybe um, sub-points to the main point of the passage, but they lie underneath there as foundations. And we need to reflect on them in order to uh, understand the warning that he gives here. First, you see there the, reliab- uh, the reliability of the Old Testament. For since the message declared by the angels proved to be reliable. Just stop there. This, this message declared by the angels is, is referring to, at the very least, the law of Moses. If you were here last week, we looked at this a little bit. But by the time that this was written to this Jewish community, remember this is written to Hebrews, this is written to a community of, uh, of people that, that knew their Old Testaments. But by the time this was written, they and, all, and Jews in general came to believe that the law of Moses was mediated to them by angels. And I showed last week how you could see that in Stephen's speech in Acts chapter 7. And you could also see it in Galatians 3.19. Paul writes there that the law was put into place through angels by an intermediary. The law was put into place through angels by an intermediary. intermediary. That's Galatians 3.19. In some of their translations of the Old Testament as well, there were, there were also places where it seemed to say that angels were involved in the giving of the law. And so you have to remember here, the Old Testament was written originally in Hebrew, the New Testament was written in Greek, and I think this writer to Hebrews, when he quotes the Old Testament, is using a, a Greek translation of the original Hebrew. And so some things changed a little bit, and they... Not to, to any great degree, but in some of those passages in the Old Testament, they listed angels there as being the ones that, that gave the Old Testament, or at least the Mosaic law. And that translation, by the way, is called the Septuagint. You may have heard of that. But he's probably not just talking about the law here. We're trying to figure out what he's talking about when he says the message declared by angels. Now, I don't think he's talking purely about the law. Sometimes the law 
um, was used to summarize the whole Old Testament. So I think he might be referring to all of the Old Testament here, and he's saying all of it is reliable. And I think that we need to realize that that's very reassuring for us. Even though he already made the point that the word comes to us from Jesus, and, and that that word is the complete word, this is saying that the law is important, and it's reliable. We can count on it to be true. And so when people you might talk to, and you talk to them about the Bible or about Christianity, there are always doubters and, and skeptics that try to poke holes in the reliability of the Scriptures. Well, here's something, internal evidence from the Bible itself that says that the law of Moses, at the very least, and the whole Old Testament, I think, are completely true. We have a reliable word. So let's not drift from making that claim. The very fact that it's reliable should help us not to drift away from it. Then in verse 3, it talks about the salvation that we're in danger of neglecting. Just note there how it's described. It is such a great salvation. That's really a a hook to the whole passage. Every time you see the word it in these verses, it's talking about this, this, this such a great salvation. Our salvation is large, magnanimous in its importance and in its cost and in its provision and definitely in its provider. It's an interesting verse in, in 1 Samuel 9. When David killed Goliath, his friend uh, Jonathan described that. Sorry, in 1 Samuel 19, verse 5. He described that by saying, David struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. That's a good picture and pointer of what happened with us. We could say that, I think without spiritualizing it too much, that Jesus struck down the giant obstacle of sin. And through him, the Lord has worked a great salvation for all his children. How amazing is that? When we can grasp the greatness of our salvation, and maybe we have to look back at the story of David and the giant to see that, when we can grasp the greatness of our salvation, we might not be so quick to drift. And so in that way, our great salvation should serve as an anchor for us, if you want to use that boat analogy. Then notice the advantages that we have at the end of verses 3 and 4. It, this great salvation now, was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to, attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit. And so we already saw there the reliability of the Old Testament. Now we see that the gospel, which is the theme of the whole New Testament, is reliable too. It was declared by Jesus himself. And then the apostles, the disciples, that's what it's talking about when it says those who heard, they attested to it. And not only that, but God the Father was involved in it as well. And not only that, but God the Holy Spirit was involved as he distributes these gifts. And so think of this. We have the entire uh, force of the Trinitarian God here working as one to confirm the reliability and the power of such a great salvation of the gospel of Jesus Christ as it's given in the New Testament. So for us who are Christians, we are blessed and, and privileged that God would be so kind to reveal this to us. And, and to open our hearts to receive such a great salvation. 
And look how it's revealed and confirmed. It, it comes supernaturally. Signs, wonders, various miracles, gifts of the Holy Spirit. These are significant displays of power in which God's Word is revealed, or was revealed at least there. Signs and wonders show up at different times in the Bible. They show up in the ministry of the prophets, they show up in the ministry of Jesus, and they show up again in the ministry of the apostles, mostly through Peter and Paul, always when God is making himself known in some kind of, we could say, in a saving kind of way. And they always happen for the purpose of confirming God's message and ministry. A confirmation which we now have in the form of God's word. Which is why I believe some of these gifts passed away. They ceased. They're no longer needed today. But the fact that the saving activity of God is confirmed in those kinds of supernatural ways should encourage us and and should embolden us again to not drift and to not neglect such a great salvation and to pay careful attention to what we have heard in the gospel. So we have some great privileges. We've been blessed by these things, these, these privileges, these, these certainties. But with great privileges comes great accountability, doesn't it? It's always like that. With greater knowledge comes greater responsibility. And so look back at verse 2. For since the message declared by angels, proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And so we said that this is talking directly about the law of Moses here, this message that was declared by angels. And so track what he's saying here. If the message of the law is reliable, and if every time someone broke the law, and it's talking here about every transgression or disobedience, if, if every time someone broke the law, they got the proper penalty, if that's how God treats the law, how much more are we in danger then if we neglect the gospel? Sort of an argument from the lesser to the greater. That's why we have this warning to pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Because God, because God now has spoken to us by his Son, we have no excuse for not responding to what we have heard. We have no excuse in responding to the gospel by being saved. And since we have God's final sufficient word, Jesus in the New Testament as it comes through the apostles of Jesus, we now have no excuse for not obeying the commands of Jesus Christ as well. We have no excuse for salvation or for obedience. And so it's not enough just to have heard. Hearing always has to be accompanied by a response. If a child hasn't been told that that, uh, that she shouldn't touch a dessert before dinner. We, we can't really hold her accountable if she sneaks a bite. But once she has heard the warning, and she still goes and, and dips her beautiful, dainty little fingers in, in the ice cream, now she's going to receive a just reward, if you want to put it that way, for her transgression. Well, in the case of the gospel, all of us who have heard the gospel are without excuse. And in a sense, everyone is without excuse, right? Romans 1, because they have seen God's created works, they should have known that there is a God. But especially those of us that have heard about Christ and know about Christ have a responsibility to respond to what they have heard. And that response here in Hebrews 2.1 is to pay much closer attention. So there's great privilege. And with great privilege comes great accountability. But what we finally see here is a great and dire warning. 
Verse 3 points to the unmistakable certainty of judgment if we neglect the gospel. The stakes are, are big. If violating and breaking the law always brought anything from, uh, in the Old Testament, from some sanctions all the way to the death penalty, then a neglect of the gospel will more certainly bring judgment. And so this is where we get to the heart of the passage. Verse 3, since we have been privileged with all this information and since we've been graced with God's final revelation to us by his Son, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And the implied answer is that we can't escape. There's no weaseling our way out of this. There's no looking for loopholes. It's interesting how this little section is filled with legal expressions, things like transgressions and justice and retribution and bearing witness. Well, when you get before the righteous judge, you, you can't explain your way out like you might be able to do with a, with a mag- magistrate for, a, for some sort of a traffic violation. Here, there's no escape. So this is a dire warning of imminent danger. Friends, you need to hear this. You need to pay attention. You must not let yourself drift. I was personally struck as I was preparing this, first and foremost, by my own tendency to drift. Even though um, studying the Word is, is part of my job, or part of my calling if I want to be more spiritual. If I'm not careful, this can all become an intellectual exercise where I just study and then preach, and then rinse and then repeat. But there's always a danger of drift. I think this is talking particularly to those who have an intellectual knowledge of the gospel and of Jesus Christ. And so I have to pay attention to that, to be mindful of it, to make sure that I hold fast in my own heart to to the moorings of the word. I need to let these things land on me and transform me before I declare them to you. But I was also struck this week that part of my pastoral responsibility is to warn you of danger. It was the Puritan John Owen writing way back in the 1600s that, that hammered that home. And you'll know this is the 1600s by the language here. He wrote, if the dispensers of the word insist not on these warnings, he calls them threatenings, the dispensers of the word insist not on these threatenings, they they deal deceitfully with the souls of men and detain from the counsels of God. Let not men think themselves more evangelical than the author of the gospel, more skilled in the mystery of conversion and edification of souls of men than the apostles. In a word, more wise than God himself, which they must do if they neglect this part of his ordinance. As a pastor, if I'm to be faithful, I need to warn you about these warnings. And I think in evangelicalism today, this is not part of the package anymore. It's more of a feel-good gospel, missing the warnings. If there are warnings, it's mostly warnings that if you don't give money that judgment is going to fall upon you, right? And so we need this within evangelicalism. We need to hear these warnings. We need to give these warnings. Owen makes the point that these threatenings from God are actually part of the gospel itself. He says that they're there for the benefit of unregenerate sinners as they send out the beacon call of sure judgment unless you repent and trust Christ. 
But threatenings are not just for the unregenerate, they're also there for believers so that we can keep constant in our reverence for God and we can keep constant in our praise and in our thankfulness that we have been saved from the wrath to come. Are you thankful? But he also says that these threatenings are there for preachers because we see here in Hebrews that the punishment threatened in the gospel is as unto degrees greater and more sore, end quote, than that which was attached to the transgression of the old covenant. So the warnings of the gospel here are greater, greater import than transgressing, transgressing even the old covenant. And so with all that in mind, I want to plead with you this morning not to drift. Kind of like this preacher that wrote Hebrews is doing. I'd appeal to you to listen to this warning. Kind of feel like the writer of Proverbs, in Proverbs 4, 20 to 22. He's writing to his son here, but we could apply this to all of God's children. He says, my son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ears to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them. So the writer to Hebrews is saying that same kind of thing. We've got to pay closer attention. Don't ignore these words. And if you pay attention, the promise is is that there's life in these words. There's eternal life, ultimately. But there's even life in, in, in our Christian walk if we pay attention to these words. Like I said before, drift is subtle. It can happen before you know it, and we're all susceptible to it. No one is immune. It can happen easily, and it can happen in lots of different ways. I think the chief way in our day and age is is a gradual uh, slipping away from a pursuit toward holiness. And a gradual, um, if one is slipping away, then maybe a gradual adherence, like glue, to the things of this world. The pull toward uh, fitting in seems easier than the pull toward godly living. And we think we can somehow maintain Christian values, yet flirt just a little bit with the world's values. I'm all for the fact that we should be out in the world and, and, and that we definitely should not be uh, hiding our lights under a bushel. No, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Hide it under a bushel? No. I'm going to let it shine. We need to get out into the dark world in order to do that. But there are ways to do that without joining the darkness. I'm afraid that in our efforts to shine as lights in the universe, we actually just blend into the darkness and have little to no effect in helping people see Christ in us. I'm afraid that our desire to be cool and to be hip can sometimes lead us to drift into the general flow of the world, which will lead us away from the moorings of God and the gospel. Kevin DeYoung has written a book that I'd commend to all of you on this subject called The Whole in Our Holiness. In that book, he says, our culture of cool is partly to blame from this drift away from holiness. He says to be cool often means pushing the boundaries with language, with entertainment, with alcohol, and with fashion. Many Christians have willingly embraced Christian freedom, but without an equal pursuit of Christian virtue. He's saying that we excuse our desire to be cool by saying that we're now free in Christ. Yet the danger in doing that is that we will subtly drift away from anything that looks like 
holy, pure Christian living. There's a warning actually in Hebrews 12 that says that we need to strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That's a pretty dire warning too. And so I just want to encourage you, my brothers and sisters, to be very careful. Hear this heartfelt warning. Pay much closer to attention to what you have heard in the gospel and in the commands for godly, Christ-like living, lest you drift away from it. Do the hard work of trying to stay close to Christ in what you do and in how you look, rather than just going along with the current. Pay some careful attention. Maybe take inventory to the general direction of your life. Think of it as being out on the lake. Find a place on the shore in which you can take your settings, in which you can take your moorings to know where you're supposed to be. And then make sure you look over there once in a while to see if you're still there. If you find yourself drifting, make sure you get back. Just think of those moorings as Jesus Christ himself, his gospel, his word. Don't drift away. Don't neglect such a great salvation. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to hear this warning this morning. How grateful we are, again, for your word that you have encouraged with us, us with today. And I pray that we would indeed receive it as exactly that, as a call to be courageous, as a, as a call to honestly consider our walk with you, as a call to holiness, as a call to pay much closer attention to what we have heard. And, and when we do that, there's actually a promise contained in this warning, and that is a promise that we will not drift. And so I ask this morning that you would just keep reminding us of this truth. Even this week, even as we go from here and interact back with the world again, thank you for such a great salvation that you have given to us through your Son. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.